fact that we're kind of building this around kind of a next generation because uh, we've got a great student ministry here at Adventure. And in this Advent season, what we've been doing is our students have been kind of setting the stage for each week of, of Advent. Last week, we kicked off Advent. Kind of the theme of that week was hope. Uh, and this week, our theme is peace. And Zoe Gatewood is going to explain and unpack what, what when we talk about peace, we talk about peace from a biblical perspective, what does that mean? So th- in the second week of the Advent season, we kind of build all of this around peace. And Zoe's going to tell us a little bit more about what that means. During, is it on? Yeah, you're good. Oh, okay. Yeah. During the second week of Advent, we focus on peace. The Hebrew word for peace, shalom, goes far beyond not fighting with others or peace as we know it. Shalom is, in essence, how things are meant to be, a slice of heaven. Peace from God, biblical peace, allows us to trust in God's promises despite the dark and scary world around us. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Let me pray for us while Zoe lights this second candle. Let me give you that. Jesus, th- this morning, as we get ready to open your word and dive into the moment that, 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 that we were told that you were on your way, uh, we recognize and we remember your peace. That peace, just like Zoe said, that it's not about absence of conflict. It's not about not fighting. It's about wholeness. It's about completeness. It's about fullness, even in the midst of crazy situations and circumstances. It, it remembers, it reminds us to not be afraid. Uh, So Jesus, we pray today as we open your word uh, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts to the peace that you want to provide. Jesus, we love you. Shall we pray? Everybody said? Amen. Whichever one. Oh, you got it. Great. Awesome. Perfect. Good work. Good work. Thank you, Zoe. Uh, Hey, so last week, last week we kicked off our Advent series um, by by taking some time to get kind of reacquainted with this kind of old school, fifth century church tradition called Advent. Like we said last week, there ain't no party like a fifth century party. Because uh, the fifth century party uses wreaths. Uh, that's what they chose. That's the thing that they use. They're like, hey, let's get wild. How about green? How about greenery? Let's get more crazy. What if we put it in a circle? Let's get even crazier. What if we put four candles around it, right? That's, that was their idea, right? But here's what Advent is, just so we can kind of get reacquainted with this. Advent, what it represents is a present, which means right here and now, trust and pursuit of something or someone, right? So we're trusting, we're pursuing something or someone, and that pursuit is rooted in confidence, that word confidence, right, that we talked about the Latin confide, with faith. Like we have faith that comes from our past experiences. And in the midst of that present trust, in the midst of that, that past confidence, what we do is we believe in and we anticipate and we look forward to a better future. That's what Advent is all about. So we talk about this ancient tradition, this old school tradition. This is really what we're talking about when we talk about Advent. Now, when you go back to the 5th century, Right, All of this happened. The reason that they created this, this four-week-long celebration was that it, it led up to the celebration of Christmas. And so which makes sense. When you start thinking about what we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus' birth, his arrival, the moment that he stepped into our mess, right? what happens in that? All of this stuff, past confidence in all of the things that God has done, present trust in Jesus, right, and the future anticipation of this kingdom that Jesus, that, that he says, listen, I'm, I'm coming back, and when I, come, when I come back, my kingdom's coming with me, right? That's what Christmas is all about. That's what it's all about. It's all about remembering those past promises, having that present trust, right? And then having that belief, that future anticipation, right? That's what it's about. But here's the thing. All of this kind of past, present, future stuff is built around, like we talked about, there's these four candles, there's these four lights, these four things that kind of signify hope, peace, love, and joy, 
But here's the thing. It's important that we get this. And this hit me last week after kind of I went back and listened through what we, what we unpacked together. I think it's important for us to understand that Advent isn't a noun. It's really a verb. Like Advent is a verb. It's an action. It's a way of living. And we all do it. Because, again, we, we start thinking about, like, old school, fifth century traditions that involve, you know, wreaths and candles and all that kind of stuff. We can get lost in it. Like, well, Advent is a thing. It's, it's, this, it's this piece of decoration. It's a, de- it's a piece of decoration. It's holiday decor that sits in our house. And it means something. What does it mean? I don't, I don't know. Right? It's old. Like, I, I don't know. It's, it's old. It's cool. It means something. But here's the thing. We all do this. We all Advent. Right now, in this, in this moment, in this place, we have all Advented or are all Adventing for something. Every one of us, every one of us, we, we are presently, you're presently giving your trust to, and you're pursuing something or someone. You are. You're, you're presently giving your trust to, or you're pursuing something or somebody that in your mind, in my mind, we've justified, we've justified putting our confidence in whoever or whatever that is. Remember we talk about the word justify, really the way you can understand that is just as if I, right? So that's what we do. In our minds... We're pursuing something or someone, and it's just as if we already have it, or it's just as if we want it. It's just as if whoever that is or whatever that is is already in our lives. And here's what we do. We anticipate that whoever or whatever that is is going to make good on what we expect them to do. We anticipate that they're going to do the things that they promised. And as a result, as a result of you and I presently pursuing something that we believe in, that we anticipate, we believe that our lives are going to be better off in the future because of whoever or whatever that is. And here's the truth. When we bend and we shape our hope, peace, and love and joy around whoever or whatever that is, that's Advent. That's Advent. So that's why I say we all do this. Every one of us, we Advent in some way or some shape or form, right? We all bend and we shape our hopes around something or somebody. We all bend and shape our peace or our joy or our love around whoever, around a a someone or a something. Maybe for some of us in the room, it's it's, we're looking forward to a gift that we expect to see under a tree. Like, this is the one thing I want. This is the one thing I've asked for. I've asked Santa for this. I've done all this kind of stuff. I've asked the Amazon fairy for all these things. This is is what I've asked for. I'm hoping that, that that shows up under the tree. Or maybe for some of us, it's work. Like we put all of our hope, all of our joy, all of our love, all of our peace, all of that stuff is bent around and shaped around. If I do this, that, or the other, if I do X, Y, and Z, maybe my boss will notice me, and then I'll get that promotion. And if I get that promotion, you know what that's going to do? That's going to make my life better in the future. Because I'll have more money, I'll have more status, I'll have whatever it is. That's what I'm bending my, I'm shaping my hope and my peace and my love. All of this is going to provide this for me. Or maybe it's this, maybe it's, maybe it's a medical plan or a treatment. All these other things have failed, and the doctor said, this is, this is another thing we can try. Maybe this is going to make me feel better. Maybe this will work. And so we bend and we shape all of our hope, all of our peace, all of our love, all of our joy around those kinds of things. And so here's what we have to do, right? Well, we have got, we've got the opportunity right now in, in 2022 to learn a thing or two from our fifth century brothers and sisters in Christ. The 5th century followers of Jesus. Here's what we need to do. Here's what we're going to do over the next few weeks, right? We're going to, to, to lean into something that they were on to, right? These 5th century followers of Jesus, they were on to something. And we need to kind of bring this thing out and dust it off and, and begin to kind of lean back into the things that they were on to. And here's what they were on to. Here's what they knew. Any kind of adventing, any kind of bending or shaping your hope, peace, love, or joy around something or someone that's outside of what God promises and provides when it comes to those things is truly counterfeit and conditional advent. 
Like, fifth century followers of Jesus got this. They understood this. That if we try to bend and shape our hope around anything else, whatever it is, or, or whoever they are that ask for your confidence, whoever they are that ask for your trust, they might make similar promises to what we find in Scripture. Like, they might tell us, they might try to convince us that, you know what, hey, I can take just as good a care of you as Jesus can. I'm going to make this promise. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to show you my past track record. They, they might be able to show you a resume of all the times that they've succeeded in taking care of people like you. They've got a good resume. They've got a good profile. And that leads us to believe that they're worth pursuing in our present. And it leads us to believe that they can provide. That whoever or whatever that is, they can provide, that it can make good, that it can follow through on everything that they promised, which would hopefully give us a better future. In that future, I'll feel more hope. In that future, with this person or whatever that thing is, if I could just get my hands on that, then I would have peace. Then I would be complete. Then I would be whole. If I could just get a hold of it, then I would have joy. Then I'd be happy. See, we lose the fact that joy is not an emotion. It's a mindset. And we think, well, if I could just get this, then I'll have joy. My joy is built around and shaped around this person or that thing or that promotion or whatever it is. If I could just do this, then, it, then, I, then, then I would feel loved. Then I would have that. See, what 5th century followers of Jesus knew is this, that anytime we advent in anything other than, other than the promises of God, it's counterfeit and it's conditional advent. It's like Admiral Akbar says in Star Wars, it's a trap. And here's what it is. Counterfeit and conditional advent, they always ask more from us. It always asks for more. Counterfeit and conditional advent, they'll always take more from us. And usually, it ends up costing us more than it was ever really going to give us in the first place. And I'm guessing that a lot of us, me too, me too, we've learned the hard way. That instead of whoever or whatever that thing was providing for you, like they said they would, like we thought they would, like they promised they would, and let's be real, like we expected them to, with conditional and counterfeit advent, what happens is these flames, right, that represent that light and that life and that hope and that peace and that love and that joy, they go out. They blow out with the lightest breeze, right? And what do they do? They take all that stuff with them. All that hope, all that joy, all that peace, all that love you were hoping would last forever is gone. They left. They bailed. And they're not coming back. And everything that they said they were going to give me, everything that they said they were going to offer, everything they said was real, they took it with them. And now I'm left with nothing. So what we need to do in the next few weeks is we need to lean into real Advent. And here's the truth. Real Advent is only possible when it's directed towards and shaped around the person and promises of God. It's the only way it works. If we begin to, to live in the present pursuit of or in the past confidence of or in the future faithfulness of anything other than God, it's going to end up costing us more than it was ever going to give us. But when we shape those things around the person and the promises of God works. It works. And each week of Advent is intended to slow us down. I think even back in the 5th century, probably wasn't like it is today, but I think this time of year, things just get sped up. Like, we get sped up in life. Like, my life, I felt like this past week moved at a million miles an hour. I woke up on Monday, and I went to bed, and I woke up the next day, and it was Friday. And I'm like, how did this happen? It just gets sped up. We're moving at warp speed. We move really fast. And Advent is reminded to go, hey, slow down. Catch your breath. 
Let me remind you, let me remind you, remember where real hope, real peace, real joy, and real love comes from and what they look like. Like real hope, we talked about it last week, is this ability to hang on even in the midst of tension. It's the ability to believe even when things aren't going well. We talk about peace, right? Biblical peace. It's not absence of conflict, it's wholeness, it's completeness, joy. I just said it a second ago, right? It's, it's, not, it's not an emotion, it's a mindset, it's a way of living. Love. Love is not conditional. The love that we're reminded of in Advent is not a conditional love that leaves, that says, if then, if you do this, then I'll love you. It's unconditional love, the love that God has for us, the agape love, the love feast. is like, hey, I'll love you even if you don't. That's unconditional. See, real Advent, what it does is it remembers the promises that God fulfilled in the past. A real Advent pursues a better way to live, which we call here at Adventure the with God life. It's a better way to live. It's what Jesus makes possible. It's a better way to live right now. It pursues that in the present while believing in and anticipating the guarantees of the future. Now, what we dove into last week, so you got your Bibles with you? You can open those up. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to live in kind of the Old Testament over the next few weeks. But last week, as you're flipping there, let me just kind of set up where we're going. We, we, we airdropped into this pretty intense and pretty tense moment in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah. And here's something you got to remember. Everything that we're about to talk about, everything that's happening in Isaiah is taking place around 700-ish years before Jesus is born. And I said last week, Isaiah is known as a prophet. And what a prophet is, prophets are people who were chosen by God to deliver a message from God to his people. And so in this time, like the majority of God's people, the people we would refer to as the Israelites or the Hebrew people, what they've done is they've let go of their relationship and their connection with God. They let go. And here's why. See, in this moment, Israel had just not long ago come out of a civil war that split the nation in two. So there's a northern part, and the northern part kept the same name Israel. And the southern part changed their name to Judah. And that's where Jerusalem is. That's where Isaiah is writing from. Just so if, you, if, like, if, if any of you want, like, want to nerd out with me on this, like that's what that looks like. So Judah is where Jerusalem is, southern part of the kingdom. right? That's where Isaiah, he's writing this letter from, he's, he's speaking from. And, and at this moment in Isaiah, the Assyrians, which are these crazy, brutal people. Like the Assyrians, what they used to do when they would conquer a town, they would conquer a city, they would cut the heads off of everyone that they'd killed and pile them up in a pyramid out in front of the gates of the city. So when you walked into that city, you knew the Assyrians had been here. That was like, you know, like you'd write like the funny thing, like Brad was here. The way the Assyrians did, the Assyrians were here, they just piled up people's heads, right? They're brutal, crazy, brutal people. And they had already conquered Israel, right, in the north. And now they have Judah, the people in the south, They've got them surrounded on every side. So there's no way out. There's no escape. And the people in Judah are going, we're next. We know what they do to people. What they did to them, they do that to us. They're going to do that to us. And like many of us, here's what happens for these people in Judah. When life gets difficult, when we begin to face adversity, we get scared. And when we get scared, it's human nature, we go for as much immediate control in our own lives as we can get. That's just a byproduct. At least it is for me. I don't know about for you, but when I get scared or when I face adversity, what I do is I kind of grit my teeth, right, and I try to hold on to and I try to get as much control in my life as I can when I face fear. And so what happens is this. The the people in Judah, they didn't want to wait on God. They didn't want to wait on a solution for him. They didn't want to wait for him to show up. 
They were scared. They went for control. They took matters into their own hands. And instead of directing all of their advent, that past, present, and future towards God, instead of remembering how he fulfilled his promises, instead of pursuing his life in the present, right, the way he said to live, instead of anticipating a better future, right, the political and military and religious leaders, they caved on their faith and their faithfulness. They started to fall more in line with the Assyrians. Maybe if we believe what the Assyrians believe, they'll, they'll go easy on us. Their, their kind of line of thinking was, if you can't beat them, join them. And when the leaders in Judah let go of the rope, most of the people followed. If you can't beat them, join them. But in the midst of all this, God, he speaks to Isaiah, and he asks him to deliver this message to a small group of people, just a handful of people who were still holding on to faith. They were still adventing the things that God could do. They were remembering things in the past presently pursuing him in the future and understanding, like, look, even though we're surrounded on all sides by this army that just is scorched earth, we'll, we'll still advent. We'll still shape our advent. Our hope, our peace, our joy, and our love will still shape that around God. And here's what Isaiah says in chapter 9, starting in verse 2. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. He says, you, God, you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They're glad when they, they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You've broken all of those as on the day of Midian. He's talking about things that happened in the past. We talked about that last week, about amazing things that God has done in the past, things that don't make sense. If you need to know what those things are, go listen to, to last week's message on the podcast, right? But here's what he says. Every boot, right, of, of, the, of, the, of the trampling warrior in battle and tumult and every garment that has been rolled in in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And I think it's interesting because I read this this week that the Assyrian army, when they would conquer a city or they would kill people, they would take their their kind of their fatigues, right, for lack of a better word, right, their their their, their military outfit, and they would roll their outfits in the blood of the people that they conquered. So, like when they came into your town, bloody, you knew that's not theirs, that's ours. And Isaiah's going, listen, there's a time when all those garments that they rolled in blood, they're going to be burned. They're fuel for the fire. Don't even worry about it. The first place that Isaiah points to is the past. He refers back to God's past track record to things that have already happened. And here's kind of the mindset in this was if God has already done that, all that he said he can do in the past, then he can do it now in our present. And we can count on what he says he's going to do in the future. So it's all leading to this point, right? Here's what's going to happen. And all the people are like, yeah, we can't wait for that. Looking forward, we're adventing that. We're adventing this moment, right? Here's what's going to happen, right? How's, this, how's God going to do this? Like, that's their next question. All of that sounds great. Increasing the nation, joy, right? Rejoicing is in time of a harvest, right? There's no more fighting. All these garments have been rolled in blood. are going to be fuel for the fire. We don't have to worry about it. We're not going to be insecure. We don't have to worry about any, anybody attacking us. Like, this all sounds great. How's God going to do this? What are we anticipating? Like, that's the question that the people were asking. Maybe a lot like us ask. Like, we ask, like, how's God going to show up in my situation? How's God going to show up in my circumstances? How's God going to show up in the mess of my family? How's God going to show up in the mess of everything I'm dealing with? In my, how's God going to show up in the middle of this medical situation that no one seems to have an answer for? How's it going to show up? And this is Isaiah's answer. Catch this. He says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. We'll pause right there. Just leave that up there for a second. Because I think 
a lot of the, a lot of the reactions back 700 years before Jesus was born is probably a lot like some of the reactions we have right now. Like seriously, that that's the best he could come up with a baby, a baby boy. Like, how's a baby boy going to fix my marriage? How's a baby boy going to deal with all the junk I've got w- w- going on? How's, how's a baby boy going to help me find a job? How's a baby boy going to put food on my table? How's this going to happen? How's a baby boy going to help me deal with my depression, my anxiety, whatever it is? How's this going to happen? How can he do that? Really? That's it? That's the best you could come up with? God says, this is how I'm going to show up. You want to know what you're adventing? You want what you're looking for, what you're anticipating? Here's what you're anticipating. God says this, that you're anticipating there's going to be a time, there's going to be a moment when I put skin on and I step out of heaven and into your mess. That's what you're anticipating. There's going to be a moment where you don't have to try to get to me anymore. I'm going to come to you. That's going to happen. And when I do that, I'm going to show up as a baby boy. And 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah says, this is what we're waiting on. This is what we're waiting on. This is what we're building our hope around. This is what we're shaping peace to. This is what, this is what we're counting on for joy, for love. This is it. We could say this, like the past promises, present trust, and future hope, they all collide in Jesus. They all meet in Jesus. All of, that pre- all of that past, right, that, that, that past promise, all of those promises and that confidence, that trust, that hope, it all collides in Jesus. And Isaiah goes on. Here's what he says. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forever. And all of says this, that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's love for you, his passion for you, his willingness to step into your mess, to come to your aid, to come to your defense, to not run away from your life or be ashamed of you, but run, to run into the burning building that might be your life right now, that's what's going to accomplish this. And this is not, not in my notes, right, so I'm just, bear with me, right? I, I just, just even thinking about this in, this in this moment, right, the zealots were people, and Jesus had one of these zealots as his disciples. The zealots were people at the time that were considered by the Roman government to be kind of domestic terrorists. Like, they were people who were willing to risk it all. They would risk it all. They would train, right? They would risk it all, right, to defend their country, to defend their land. And so when we read this, right, the the zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to do this, right? It is the passion within our Father, the Almighty God, who says, I will come to your aid. I will do whatever it takes. I will pay whatever cost it requires to defend my people, my territory. That's what will do this. And what we learned last week is that in the middle of Isaiah's Advent message, he rattles off this list of names for Jesus. And these aren't just like nice titles or encouraging words about Jesus. They are Jesus' throne names. So it's it's kind of an ancient Near Eastern cultural custom that when a a king would ascend a throne to take the throne, to sit on the throne, to rule, that they would give that king throne names. 
So Isaiah's just doing what the cultures around them would do. When he talks about Jesus coming as king, ascending his throne, he's giving Jesus throne names. And these throne names, what they did was they spoke to the qualities and the accomplishments of the one who was becoming king. That's what a throne name was. And we said last week that most of the time, these throne names would be kind of self-contained. They'd be individualistic, right? There'd be a period at the end of them. Isaiah, in the actual manuscript, the old Isaiah, like in, in the original language, doesn't even put a space between the names. Why? Because Jesus never stops being our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He never takes a break. He never takes a second off. He never shifts gears into something else. He's always those things. And so what we're going to do today, the last little bit that we've got, is we're going to unpack this thing called Wonderful Counselor. What does that mean? What does that mean? I listened to a teaching by one of my friends, a former co-worker of mine. Her name is Shelby Shutt. She's a friend. She's a pastor at a, a church called Westside Church in Portland, Oregon. And, and, and she taught on this a couple of years ago. And, and I listened to her teaching, and it's fantastic, right? I would encourage you to do this, right? But I'm, I'm going to steal it, right? So it's like it's just too good. So I'm going to listen. I'm listening to this. I'm going to take some notes. And I'm going to use a lot what, what she shared with, with her church. But one of the things that I love she did in kind of unpacking this, this, this throne name, Wonderful Counselor, and she put this name like side by side as the way we look at it through our modern lens. She put that side by side with the lens that people in Isaiah's time would have seen this name, Wonderful Counselor, this throne name. And so here, here's the deal. We're going to do this. We're going we're to follow in, in, in their footsteps. Because I know listening to her unpack this, it really helped me understand what Wonderful Counselor really means. And I think it's going to help us too. So let's just think about it through our modern lens, like our lens. When we hear Wonderful Counselor, what we think of is Wonderful Therapist. Right? Anybody, anybody, just admit it, right? Just say thank you. Very good, very, very good. Like, I, that's what, I, for me, it's like, I always used to think, well, wonderful counselor. I, you know, I have a wonderful counselor. I've talked about my, my counseling journey, my therapy journey. You guys know how much therapy means to me, right? I have a wonderful counselor. So I guess Jesus is a lot like Jay, right? Jesus is a wonderful, he's just a little bit better. Like, he's just, he's like Jay, he's just a little bit better than Jay. But that's not what this means. Like, our modern lens, we think wonderful counselor, wonderful therapist. Now, I just need to preface this. You know how much therapy, like, has, in, has impacted my life, right, and how much of a, a, a proponent of counseling and mental health and those kinds of things I am. But here, I just want to put this through the lens of when we think of a therapist, here's what we think of. It's somebody that helps us solve problems. They're in our lives to help us solve our problems. It's somebody that guides us into self-improvement. It's someone that, that kind of we can turn to in crisis when we need immediate help. That's our wonderful therapist. Wonderful. I had this moment where my life hit a wall, and he told me exactly what I needed to do. He's a wonderful therapist. But here at the end of the day, here's, here's what's true. Therapists in our lives, in our modern lens, there's somebody that works for us. Typically, there's somebody that we employ. Right? We, we pay them to help us. We visit them when we need them, and we visit them when it fits our schedule. That's when we go. That's when we call upon our wonderful counselors, our wonderful therapists. You work for me. I pay, your, I, I pay you. I pay you for your time. I call you when I need you. I visit you when I need you. And I, I show up when it's convenient for you and me. That's how it works. Now, here's the thing. I'm not knocking counseling. I'm not knocking therapy. You know that. The point for this is for us to begin to see what happens when we look at Jesus, the wonderful counselor, through our modern lens. This is what happens. Here's what happens to Jesus. He becomes your helper. He becomes your problem solver. Jesus becomes like your crisis management person. He's your PR team. He works for you. He's on your payroll. 
Jesus is there when you need him. You visit him sometimes, but usually the time that you visit him is really when, when you feel like him, when it's best for your schedule, or when you think you need him the most. And I've mentioned this before in here, but there's actually a name for having that kind of relationship with Jesus. It, there's actually a, a belief system that, that's based around this. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism, which is this. God is only in my life to make me happy. God's in my life to make me happy. God is in my life to make me feel good. That's my relationship with God. I show up, I go to God when I need him, when I'm feeling sad, he's there to make me feel happy. When I don't feel good, he's there to make me feel better. He's there to encourage me, to make me into a better person. That's, that's what he's there for. And I love what Shelby had to say about this in, in, in her message to her church. She said that, that taking that approach and using a modern lens to see Jesus, the wonderful counselor, looks like this. Jesus' counsel in our lives becomes optional and not essential. Jesus really is just one more opinion that we might pay attention to instead of being the primary source of authoritative wisdom that we submit to. That's what happens. That's why it's important for us to understand who Jesus really is. So that's the modern lens, right? That's, that's our modern lens. That's what happens when we view Jesus, the wonderful counselor, through our modern lens. When Jesus becomes our wonderful therapist, that's what happens. Well, let's talk about the ancient lens then. How, how did Isaiah, when, when this, this throne name, wonderful counselor, was given, how did Isaiah see Jesus? How did the people that were listening to Isaiah understand Jesus as wonderful counselor? Here's what it meant back in this day. Wonderful counselor really actually was more like supernatural secretary of defense. That's what they would have understood it as. And this word wonderful that we see show up, kind of the, the, the lead title, that word wonderful, it, it implies this, that it's supernatural, that it's beyond human understanding, and it implies authority. Someone who is in a position of power that is beyond your understanding and is beyond your ability. Just a couple examples. In Isaiah 55, here's what Isaiah says. He says, you know, like when it comes to trying to get on God's level. It says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways. This is God. He's talking to Isaiah. He said, listen, you don't think like me. The way I think is not the way you think. The way I do things, it's not like the way you do things. And God says this, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher, more wonderful than your ways. My thoughts are more wonderful than yours. They're beyond your comprehension at times. They're beyond your ability, and I'm in charge. And Job, the end of the book of Job, after everything that Job has been through, and I love this, one of the most passionate conversations with God. If you ever think, like, you got to show up to God, like, hello, right, like, like and, and be, like, polite, Job and God, like, get into it. Like, Job comes at God with all, with all of his suffering and all of his anger, right? Job is honest before the Lord, and the Lord is honest back. And at the end of this conversation between Job and God, here's what Job says. I know that you can do all things. Verse 42, or chapter 42, verse 2 and 3. I know that you can do all things, he says, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, here's what Job says. I've uttered what I did not understand. Things that are too wonderful for me. That I didn't know. So that's what wonderful counselor. When we talk about wonderful Supernatural secretary of defense. Beyond our ability, beyond our compre comprehension, and he's in charge. 
So for Isaiah, in this ancient lens, his readers would have, when they heard that word wonderful counselor, they would have heard something like war general, military strategist. That word, again, that word counselor is the Hebrew word ya'atz, which means advisor. And this military strategist, this advisor, wouldn't have been present just in times of crisis, but would have provided a constant and consistent counsel on all decisions, small and big. And this is the one I think is really important. That the wonderful counselor is communal, not just individualistic. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus, as the wonderful counselor, is not yours personally. He's not on your payroll. He doesn't work for you. He works on our behalf. He's communal. He's for all of us, not just for some of us. That's what he does. He doesn't work for you. He works on our behalf. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, is not our employee. It's meant to give us advice when we ask for it. And we'll otherwise just keep his mouth shut as we go about our business. Like, Jesus, listen, I, just shut up and let me do what I need to do. And I'll ask you something. And when, when I need you, then you can show up, right? I'll let you know. I'll ask you questions. That's, Jesus, like, I, I don't work that way. But a lot of the times, that's how we approach him. Jesus, when I want your opinion, either I'll ask for it or, Jesus, I'll give it to you. I'll tell you, Jesus, what you think, what I think we should do. It's the other way around. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, is who we give total directional authority to in every area and aspect of our lives. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, is who we seek out for wisdom. The word wisdom in the Bible means skilled living. To be skilled at life, you need wise counsel. That's what Jesus wants to offer. He wants to offer us an abundant life. Well, if you want an abundant life, you've got to submit to his authority. You have to submit to his counsel. And here's what our response is. Our only response to Jesus' wonderful counselor is this. Receive it and obey it. That's it. That's it. There's no third option. There's no D all of the above. Receive it and then obey it. But if we're being honest, when we look at this Advent wreath, the symbol of like this season, right, hope, peace, love, joy, all that stuff, what do we do? They usually orbit around us. Like really, this candle in the middle, that's us. We put ourselves at the center of these kinds of things, right? Like the candle in the center doesn't represent Jesus. It represents me, right? I'm the centerpiece of my story. You know what happens you know what happens when we put ourselves at the centerpiece of our own story? The same thing that happened to the Israelites. We stop seeking, we stop receiving, we stop submitting to, and we stop obeying Jesus' wonderful counsel, and we start to try to do it ourselves. This, this past season, this past fall, one of the things I asked Jack, my oldest, was like, hey, listen, man, you want to go hunting with me this season? He's like, yeah, I'd love to go hunting with you, Dad. Like, I think it'd be really cool. It's going to take you in. It's like father-son bonding moment or, or out in the woods, like big tough guys, right? And so I took him. I said, first thing I got to do is I got to teach you how to shoot. Like, I got to teach you how to shoot. And, and parents, you get this, right? So parents, when we parent our kids, we're showing our kids the right way or wrong way to do something. How do we, we do that? Because we have perspective. We have understanding. We've got experience. We've got knowledge. We've done this before, right? And so imagine as I take Jack out to help him shoot, to teach him how to shoot, how to sight in his rifle, how to load his rifle, where the safety is, those kinds of things. Imagine Jack looking at me going, Dad, I don't need you. I got this. I'll figure this out. We're all in danger, right? 
Like, I've, I've handed my son a loaded weapon and not taught him at all, or he's not willing to listen to me at all when it comes to how to use it. It's the same way when it comes to ignoring the wonderful counsel of Jesus. When we put ourselves at the center of this story, when all of hope, peace, love, and joy revolve around us, let me just tell you, we become loaded weapons that we have no idea how to use. We put ourselves and other people in danger as long as we're at the center of this. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. So there is someone in our lives that has more perspective, that has more experience, more understanding when it comes to the way life should work, where hope, peace, love, and joy come from. And this is the truth. We were never meant to, we were never meant to be the centerpiece of our story. We were intended to live in second by second and moment by moment submission to Jesus, the wonderful counselor. And I get this as we wrap up this morning. Submission is a loaded word. I understand that. But here's what submission means in the Bible. Biblical submission means to personally advocate for leadership in your life. That's what it means. So the question is this, can you run your own life? Can you run your own life? Can I? Yeah, we can try. We can give it a shot. Can you be your own leader? Can I be my own leader? Yeah, we can give it a shot. We can try. But here's what happens. In submission, instead of trying to lead and run your own life, you seek out leadership. There's, there's kind of this longing for the leadership of another the way we could say it is like this, when we, when we submit, right, what we do is we advocate for leadership when we offer our full support to the leader and our full submission to the leadership they provide. That's what it means. Like when you and I advocate for leadership in our lives, we give whoever that leader is our full support. I'm behind you. Trust you. Follow you. And then we submit to the leadership that they provide in our lives. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll obey. But when we put ourselves at the center of our own stories, we usually advocate for our own leadership, right? I'm in charge. And if we're being really honest, we think other people should also advocate for our leadership. I could help them. If they would just listen to me, I could fix them. If that's you, right, which let's be honest, it's all of us at some point. I just want to ask you a really loaded question today. If you've been operating at the center of your own story, the center of your own life, You've been advocating for your own leadership and maybe thinking other people should advocate for your leadership too. How's that working out for you? Like really? How's that working out for you? You might be in charge of your own life. But what's the status of your hope right now? Does it feel pretty solid? Does your hope feel pretty solid? You feel pretty safe, pretty assured in what you're hoping in? Or is it kind of hard to hang on to? Is it fragile? What's the status of your peace? You're the center of your own life. You're running things. What's the status of your peace? Things seem whole and complete in your life right now? Does your life feel whole and complete? Or are you constantly trying to plug the empty holes and spaces and leaks in your life? What's the status of your joy? Is there a lot of that around? Or is it hard to find? Do you have abundant joy? Do you have, do you have spare joy? Or are you out? How about love? The kind of love you've got in your life right now, does it feel secure? Does it feel safe? Or does it feel more like a house of cards? Like you are one decision away from being surrounded on all sides by people that want to take you out. 
be like that. How has following, how has, how has your, your life, as you've been following your own counsel, how has that worked out for you really? How has it gone really when you put yourself at the center of your own story? My friend Shelby, she said this, if we want to live in the wonderful counsel of Jesus, it requires submission to him that says, anytime, any place, and at any cost, I'll follow you. If we allow him to, Jesus offers counsel into every part, every aspect of our lives, down to the most personal aspects of who we are. Jesus will offer you counsel on how you spend your money, if you let him. And guess what? It'll probably be different than the things you spend your money on now. Jesus will offer you counsel on how you spend your time. And odds are it's going to be a little different than how you spend your time now. Jesus will offer counsel on how we express our sexuality. There is no part of our lives that Jesus doesn't consistently and constantly speak into if we let him. And I love this. In John chapter 1, John starts out his gospel, his biography of Jesus by saying this. If you wonder, if you just kind of wonder for a second, well, who is this wonderful counselor and what gives him the right to speak into how I spend my money, my time, or my sexuality, or anything else, my relationships, where I live, all that. What gives him the right? Like what, why, what makes Jesus so good? Here's what John has to say. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made. That was made, right? Nothing, nothing happens if you take Jesus out, right? That, that's basically what, what John is saying. Like, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, God with skin on. He was there in the beginning, and everything was made through Jesus. And without Jesus, it didn't get made. He says this, in him was life. And the life was the light of men, mankind, people. The light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Church, here's the truth. When we let Jesus, the wonderful counselor, speak into our lives, the same mouth that spoke and created solar systems with his words speaks to us. Think about that. What makes Jesus, what gives Jesus the right to speak into your life? Jesus wasn't plan B. God didn't think of Jesus and go, oh, they messed up. we got to come up with a backup plan. Jesus was with God at the beginning. Jesus was the method through which God created. The same mouth that said, let there be light and let there be stars in the sky and let there be oceans and let there be mountains and let there be people. That same mouth that spoke and those things happened is the same voice and the same mouth from, from out which those words come and speak into our lives. That's what gives him the right. Can you open your mouth and create a mountain? No, Jesus can. You might want to listen to him. That's what he can do. But here's the deal. In order for Jesus to fully live into and exercise his throne names in our lives and through our lives, Jesus has to be on the throne. Which means you and I can't be. And so what we're going to do, we're going to end a little different today. We're going to worship here in just a second, right? And just like every weekend, when, you, when we worship, this kind of response moment, right, gives us a chance that if you need prayer, you can come find us. would love to pray for you. If you want to join our church, I'd love to chat with you about that. If you want to say yes to Jesus, I would love to chat with you about that. We'll do that, right? But here's how we're going to end today. What I need you to do is just get in a comfortable spot. Get yourself comfortable in your chair.
This is what my therapist and I do together, right? So here we go. Group therapy. Are you ready? Get yourself comfortable in your chair. If it helps you to do this, close your eyes. And what I want you to do is, is with your hands kind of down um, by your sides or on your lap, make fists. What in those fists are you hanging on to? Maybe it's your schedule. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a title. What are you hanging on to? What are you trying to control? Where are you trying to, instead of receiving wise counsel, wonderful counselor, where are you offering it? What are you hanging on to right now? That's keeping Jesus off the throne of your life. Now turn your hands over and open up your fists. What would you just let go of? What would it look like as you open up your hands, your palms facing down, what would it look like for you to let go of that thing? It might be scary. Here's the thing. We talk about this all the time at Adventure. Bible people are people people, right? You think that the people in, in, in Judah at this moment, surrounded on all sides by the Assyrian army, you think they didn't feel fear? They felt fear. What do you need to let go of? It might be scary. Imagine yourself letting go of that. Maybe again, and maybe it's maybe it's your calendar. You're just controlling your schedule. You are white knuckling your schedule and your time. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's your status. Maybe it's your title. What would it look like for you to let go of that? Now turn your hands back over. This is a posture of receiving. See, before you couldn't receive. Before you couldn't receive wonderful counsel. Why? Because your hands were full. But you just imagined yourself letting go of whatever that thing is, and now your hands are open. This is a posture of receiving from Jesus. What do you need to receive? Maybe you've tried going this place or that place, or maybe you've tried, again, in a relationship or look to a person or a family member or a parent or a boss or a paycheck to give you what you need and ultimately at the end of the day you find my hands just stay empty what do you need to receive from Jesus the wonderful counselor what does he need to say to you what has he been saying to you you need to slow down long enough to be able to listen Maybe you can hear that today. Maybe you can lean into that today. And here's, here's the only question. One thing you need to do, and one question you need to ask yourself, what does it look like for you to receive this? That's the only thing you need to do. Just receive it. And then the question is this. How are you going to obey it? What are you going to do about it? How are you going to receive it? How are you going to follow it? Jesus, this morning we pray in your name that the things that we're holding on to, the strongholds that we've built around our lives, you would tear them down. Not to cause harm, not to hurt us, to find us. 
the midst of these structures in life that we build for ourselves to find us there, to meet us in our fear, to meet us in our doubt, to meet us in our worry, to meet us where we feel like we've got nothing. Jesus, would you loosen the grip that we have on whatever those, would we feel your hand begin to open our hands up? Would we feel your hand turning our hands over? And would we feel your hand in ours? Jesus, may we empty our hands so that we can hang on to yours. We pray this in your name. Amen. You stand and sing with us. So many reasons, too many to count, to say that I love you, to worship you now. Your love is perfect, and your heart is kind, and I'm yours forever, forever. Jesus, the anthem of my heart, Jesus, the anchor of my soul, I'm overwhelmed by all you are, oh, how I love you. You call me beloved, you call me Grace says I'm worthy, you welcome me. 